0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Well, it is my delight to have my friend and sometimes sparring partner, (laughs) Dr. Daryl Bach on the broadcast again. Thanks for your time, Daryl.
2: Hey, well, it's great to be on the bruise control. So
1: there anyway. you go. There you go. <laughs> so you have spent a significant amount of your scholastic, scholarly time in the books of Luke and Acts. And as you know, we're doing a little series, at, not a little series, a long series at our church here in Nashville, where I teach one book of the Bible each Sunday. So what we're doing is bringing subject matter experts, such as yourself, along to help us go not necessarily deeper ways, but sometimes synthetic and big picture ways of things that we miss. One of my concerns, Daryl, is when we teach the Bible uh, to people is we make a lot of presumptions about what they know and don't know about a particular book. And so one of my goals with this big book series has been to get to a 50,000 level and say, what do people really need to understand about the gospel of Luke? So you've written both popular as well as scholarly commentaries on Luke. So let's just dive in. First of all, uh, as a synoptic, give me your kind of high view of how Luke stands out. I mean, he's longer, he's more complex in some ways. Uh, Give us some of the overview, the way you look at the book.
2: Well, I tell people that Luke is kind of the orphan of the Gospels, uh, and yet without him, there would be a lot about Jesus we wouldn't know. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the early history of the church, Matthew and John were your two key Gospels because they were associated directly with apostles. Mark was a Johnny-come-lately to the party. In fact, we don't have any major commentaries written in the first several centuries on Mark. But, when New Testament scholars came to the view that Mark was likely the first gospel written, all of a sudden it shot to the top of the charts and got a lot of attention. And so Luke has never been in that position, despite the fact that Luke tells us stuff about Jesus' birth that we wouldn't know otherwise. Fully 50% of the parables come from Luke uh, that we wouldn't otherwise know, including um Several parables about the handling of money and resources, which we would know much less about what Jesus thought about that if we didn't have Luke. Luke is probably the most ethically oriented of the Gospels. It deals with the issue of ethics and the ethics of the believer Mm -hmm. in a more rounded, full-rounded way than even Matthew, which may sound surprising because you do have the Sermon on the Mount, of course, in Matthew. But Luke is covering it consistently all the way through. We have a unique section in Luke, what's called the Journey to Jerusalem section or Mm -hmm. the central section, Mm -hmm. which covers nine chapters and is loaded with much of this unique discipleship teaching that I'm talking about. So just think of it this way, if you want to think about how important Luke is. If you have a discipleship program in a church or in your church, fully half of it would go away if you didn't have the Gospel of Luke. So it's a very, very significant gospel from that standpoint. And then for our times, particularly important, From a racial and from a corporate nature of the gospel perspective, Luke is very important because it highlights reconciliation in a way that comes alongside what Paul has to say about reconciliation, but illustrates the point by the way in which Gentiles are treated within the gospel that then loops into how Acts treats the issue of the gospel going out into all the nations. In fact, the core theme of Luke-Acts is to say that God's plan to bring all the nations in a restored relationship with god was a part of his program when he called out abraham in genesis and we're seeing the working out of that so what looks to be a new movement the christian movement which in ancient times if you're new and you're in religion that's not good it's the opposite of our world where you know the new thing is the great thing no in religion you want it to be time tested you want it to be Mm -hmm. long living and long lasting and so luke is connecting this new movement to this long history that god has been at work at and saying Christianity fits. It may look new, but it's actually quite old.
1: One of the uh, books that was very attractive to me was Talbert's Reading Luke and uh, how he seems to, and again, you've read, you know, a hundred more books on this than I will accomplish, but he does some stuff with the structural analysis, with chiasms, with different devices that uh, Luke uses in Luke and Acts. I'm wondering if you had any kind of overall comments about some of the structure of the text.
2: Well, what you get, of course, is you get Jesus is doing certain things in ministry that you then see Peter do in some aspects of ministry, but with one major difference, that you then see Paul doing in ministry, but again, with that major difference in place. Jesus does what he does on the basis of direct authority. Peter and Paul do what they do on the basis of mediated authority, so that then doing things in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts becomes an important difference between how Peter and Paul do it and how Jesus did it. But the parallels of what they are doing are very similar, and it's designed to show the continuity between what Jesus did in his ministry Mm -hmm. and how the early church launched. And most of those devices that Talbert is talking about are designed to show that level of continuity. I like to tell people that Luke is a gospel writer who is showing the continuity in the program of God, stretching back to the covenant commitments made to Abraham through David in the new covenant, and then extending into their initial realization that Jesus brings, in contrast to, say, a gospel like Matthew, which is trying to contrast what Christianity is against the Judaism the people were living in. And so you get the contrastive elements or the discontinuous elements to a greater degree in Matthew, and then you get the continuous elements to a significant degree in Luke. Another unique dimension of Luke is this continuity that he brings to the storyline.
1: I appreciate you bringing up uh, from Abrahamic time constantly, Daryl, in sermons. I would say three out of five sermons I will review and mention the Abrahamic covenant, (laughs) the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, (laughs) because I think it's lost on people Uh, this continuity dates back to, you know, when Abraham is told imperative, you will be a blessing to all the earth.
2: Exactly. It's,
1: you know, the Abrahamic covenant was not Jewish centric in the sense that only Jews. And then of course we have, by the time we get to the great commission, make disciples of all ethnos. So all nations were in mind. And Luke, of course, correct me, he's Gentile, right?
2: Yeah, he's Gentile. I think he's a Gentile who may have been a God-fearer before Mm -hmm. he came to Christ, you know, before Christ showed up, if I can say it that way, in his life. And so he's come to Christianity through Judaism. I'm pretty confident of that right? because he shows so much knowledge of the Old Testament, and he's sensitive to Jewish practices and that kind of thing. So he obviously has an awareness of that world as he writes. You know, Mike, when you think about this continuity going all the way back to Abraham. I like to say when I'm in discussions on eschatology, I'm talking about the future of Israel and the fact that there is hope, you know, for the people of Israel and the future of Scripture, that that hope is not as nationalistic as it tends to be portrayed to be. It's actually part of the reconciliation story that has Jew and Gentile united in Christ. And I can't have reconciliation if one of the parties is missing. So this is a very important theme that Luke is building at. He actually does more work within an Acts than he does with Luke, but he's laying all the groundwork for it. So, for example, when we have the healing of the centurion's slave in Luke 7, uh, what we have is a set of Jewish emissaries going to Jesus to speak on behalf of the centurion, as opposed to the portrayed face-to-face meeting that you have in Matthew, because Luke is adding the layer of reconciliation to the telling of the story and the way in which the centurion and Jesus actually connected. They connected because intermediaries, Jewish intermediaries, went on behalf of this Gentile to say he was worthy of having this done for him to Jesus. Hmm. And Jesus, of course, responded to him. So this theme of the fact that very, how can I say this, ethnically hostile groups that were very, very separated by their history have been brought together by Christ, that's a very important part of the story of Lutheran.
1: Well, and to interrupt, we're in in chapter 7 when this is happening at uh, Capernaum, House of Nahum. uh, When we read about that story, the fact that he was a military leader, he is a Gentile, and yet he loved the nation and built the synagogue.
2: Exactly right. And... The interesting thing is, is that the way in which that relationship is portrayed, the way the Samaritans are portrayed, every passage involving a Samaritan is positive except for the one at the very beginning of the Jerusalem journey scene. Um, Gentiles are shown to be very, very sensitive to what it is that Jesus is doing as he moves Mm -hmm. through his ministry. You get the same thing in Mark. You get hints of it also in Matthew. I mean, the Magi are Gentiles at Jesus' birth. So you get these little... Tips of the hat, the way I like to say it tips of the hat to where the story is going as you're moving through the gospel, even though Jesus is spending the bulk of his time in the gospel ministering to other Jewish people.
1: Okay, let me ask you a speculative question. Do you think Luke understood all that as he's inspired writing this, Daryl?
2: Oh, I think he's deeply committed to the fact that at the ethical core of the Bible is this triangle. And I can't stress how important this is that. You love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And if you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, that is designed to impact your relationship to other people so that your relationship with God is never privatized. It's never just about you and God. It's always designed about you and God so that you can become the person God made you to be, which means you're going to be a blessing to the people around. And so that ethical triangle is at the core. It starts with the setting up of the people of God in Luke chapter 1, where it says, not only is John going to turn Israel back to God, which is what we all understand a prophet's call is designed to be, but also we're going to turn the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the just. Hmm. And so he says, and that's what it is to be a prepared people. The next verse says, he's preparing a people for the Lord. So what do a prepared people look like? The prepared people are people who have turned faithfully to God and as a result are better equipped to love and care for their fellow man as a result. So it's the great commandment in miniature, and Luke is all over that all the way through his gospel.
1: After the centurion servant is healed, it segues into the widow of Nain, and the connection of these two has been uh, written on. I'd love to hear your take on it.
2: Well, what you see and what Luke loves to do is, (laughs) I'll say this, wherever you have a guy, you have a gal. (laughs) Um, and so you can think about it in the infancy material. Okay. You have Simeon who greets Jesus's parents when they come to the synagogue to follow the law. And then you have a reference to Hannah. Okay. So you've got Zechariah, an old man, and you've got Mary in chapter one. So wherever you have a guy, you're going to have a gal. So you've got the centurion in chapter seven. You've got the widow of Nain whose son is raised from the dead right there in the next event. So And what you're seeing is is that Jesus has come to minister to everybody. And, of course, women are an interesting thing for Luke because they're part of the fringe that Jesus cares about, whether it's the poor or the tax collector or whatever people who have been shoved to the side by Jewish society for one reason or another. But they also are, you know, you have Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. You have the women who support Jesus Mm -hmm. in chapter 8. So that women have a very visible role and engagement with Jesus at a much higher level than anything the culture was used to uh, when Jesus is ministering.
1: You mentioned that Luke focuses on discipleship uh, in an extraordinary way. And I love this entire section. Uh, What did you say, nine chapters?
2: Yeah, nine, chapter 9 to chapter 19,
1: basically. So yeah, so you've got 10 chapters that are really focusing yeah, on discipleship. And striking to me is in the fold of all this is, of course, the losts, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And those have been written on you know, epically by scholars, preached on by esteemed pastors. Um, give us Dr. Bach's overview of the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son.
2: Well, our call, <laughs> I tease people that the Great Commission does not go, go into the church and make disciples. Uh, it says, go into now, this is not a Lucan passage, but it's the point. It's go into the world and make disciples. We're designed as ambassadors for Christ to engage with people outside the church and invite them into the sacred space and the unique enablements, the unique powers, the way Romans 1 says it, that the Spirit gives the people of God because they've been cleansed of their sins. I tell people that when you share the gospel and you only make it about the cross, you actually have short-circuited what is the good news. The good news is not just that my sins are forgiven. The good news is my sins are forgiven so that I can be cleansed and sanctified, and as a clean vessel, God can come into my life through the Holy Spirit and make me capable of living the way I was originally designed to live. That's the good news. And so when you do that, and when you reflect the discipleship that that requires, which is the example of Christ who gave himself for us when our backs were turned to God, you have everything that you need that you're seeing in those lost parables, because those lost parables are showing people taking the initiative to recollect that which has been lost. And in the case of the prodigal, what you see is a father who is welcoming back someone who has come and turned to him, In the scene where Peter hits the ground because of the miraculous catch of fish, and his reaction is, God and sinners don't have anything to do with one another. That's his theological view when that happens. So he says, away from me, for I'm a sinner. Jesus' reply when he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, is if you understand who you are outside of God and your need for what it is that God can supply, you are the very person I can work with, even though in and of yourself you're a sinner. Mm. Because I can deal with fixing that part of the Mm. equation. When the woman comes to Jesus to anoint Jesus' feet, and she has a sense of gratitude for having been forgiven this massive debt, is the way he tells it in a parable. And so she has deep love and appreciation for the grace of God. That is someone else who understands that God will embrace the one who turns to him and seeks his forgiveness, in contrast to the Pharisee who had Peter's theology. And that is that God doesn't have anything to do with sinners. Mm -hmm. So everything about chapter 15 says God has everything to do with sinners. He came to die for sinners. He came to encourage us to reach out to sinners, not because they are different or other, but because of the potential of what they could be if they experience the goodness and grace of
1: God. Talbert also talks about Jacob and Esau in comparison and contrast to the prodigal. Your thoughts?
2: Well, again, the issue here is the challenge of the older brother. The older brother really thinks he's entitled to his relationship with God. When you think you're entitled to your relationship with God, you've just cut off any possibility of understanding God's grace because God owes you what he gives you. But if you understand, you know, it's what the prodigal understood. The prodigal understood, I need what God's... In fact, I'm not even worthy to be a son anymore the way I've dishonored my father in the cultural categories of what that parable represents. And yet the father doesn't even blink, the father doesn't even let him get all the way through his confession mm-hmm. before he says, give him a robe, give him a ring. I'm going to accept him back with the status that he had. And in fact, I'm going to celebrate the fact that he's returned. And then he turns to the older brother when the older brother's upset about this, and in fact, doesn't even want to call him his brother. He wants to say, this Your son of son. yours, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to, he doesn't want to identify with what it is that's going on. Um, the father won't let him do it. You know, the father says, your brother was lost and now is found. Uh, we've recovered that which has been lost, and he rejoices in it.
1: And the parable is hanging. The parable doesn't tell us about the older son. No,
2: but we know as a result of the telling of that parable what we ought to do and how we ought to respond. Mm-hmm. So it's open-ended, but it's open-ended with a push.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> good. Um, your thoughts on, you talk about the entitlement thing, um, and the language is impossible to miss. You know, this son of mine was dead, the father says, and he said, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf, the emphasis, but he became angry. Uh, and Yeah, I mean,
2: because another very strong ethical emphasis in the Gospels in general, this isn't just in Luke, is the person who's been forgiven the great debt that allows them to have a relationship with God, should be a forgiving person because they understand what the power of forgiveness is. There's a wonderful parable. Now, this is in Matthew, in Matthew 18. It's one of my favorite parables in the Gospels about the guy who's forgiven what I call Bill Gates debt. It's 186,000 years of labor that he is forgiven. Okay, and then he goes out and he's got a guy who's got a handful of months who owes him money who he chokes. In the parable, the person who had the big debt comes to him and says, "You didn't handle that very well. I'm going to make you pay, mm. pay it back." so the Father will do to you if you're not forgiving. That's that ethical triangle. If I understand what God has done for me, that should impact how I treat others. And so that's at the yeah. core, that's at the ethical core of what Luke is after, which is why Christians should be a caring, compassionate set of people who are engaged with people on the outside in the hopes of what God can make them to be.
1: It seems that the, the religious and the legalists get angry when they don't get their way, and then they resort to politics. <laughs> and, and, and the repentant and the ones who understand their forgiveness are the ones who are, you know, remorseful and gracious to others. I don't know if that's axiomatic. They live on the
2: basis of God's mercy. I yeah. mean, think about the parable, again, in other Lucan text. The parable of the tax collector and Pharisee. The Pharisee is entitled. He distorts a price on I thank you, God, I'm such a great guy. Look mm-hmm. at all I do for mm-hmm. you. Aren't I? Isn't it a great thing that I'm on your team? I mean, I'm not sure the kingdom could function without me. I mean, that's <laughs> basically what he's saying. And I talk about entitlement, okay? And then there's the tax collector says, have mercy on me, Lord. And Jesus says one of those guys went away justified, and it wasn't the guy justifying himself.
1: I've made this observation many times, whether it's uh, in Matthew or in Luke. Uh, When Christ comes on the scene, whether it's the birth narrative or his interaction with scribes, Pharisees, and sinners, there's one of two responses. Kill him or worship him. Mm -hmm. From the moment he's born, Herod's trying to kill him. And other people are trying to find out where he is to worship him. And it seems to trend all the way through. And Luke does it in a unique way. One of my favorite ones, and I want your take on this because it's a very— in some respects, it's easy, but it's a very complicated discussion about the rich man and the Lazarus. Um, you know, there's debate whether it's a parable and all that stuff from a scholarly point of view. It's
2: a parable. Go ahead. Okay, okay. But, well, you know what I mean.
1: You've read, you've read this know. stuff. I know. It is. It's, it's, it's a parable. It's, it's funny how we, you know, is this a praise psalm or a lament psalm, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. But, but that interaction, to me, it's like it's chilling when you read this particular insight— of how, you know, God views our current present life and then the horrors of a separation apart from this so-called great chasm fixed that Luke calls it.
2: Yeah, and there's an ethical dimension in that parable that's often missed because it actually deals with two themes, how we handle the resources that we have and what that can do to us because the rich man even though he's in a very warm, uncomfortable place for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, to put it
1: mildly. <laughs> uh, that's
2: exactly right. Okay, in contrast to Lazarus, who's at Abraham's side, uh, still thinks of Lazarus as his lackey, as someone who can serve him and who ought to come interesting. serve him. Because, interesting. Okay, and not only that, not only that, but what's interesting, this is the one parable where there's a character named. Yes. And the reason the character is named is so that you know that the rich man knew that Lazarus was sitting at his gate day after day, just wanting the crumbs off the table, which he could have easily supplied and didn't. And that's in a chapter on money. So not only is there the eschatological teachings about, you know, if they don't believe the law, they won't believe the rest, if someone raises from the dead. Not only is there the teaching about the chasm between what judgment represents, but there's also an ethical teaching about the fact that you had a chance to care for your fellow man in need in a very easy and simple way that wouldn't have cost you anything, and you didn't. And when it says they have the law and the prophets, it's the ethics of the law and the prophets that's being exposed that they're supposed to read along with how God wants us to care for those in need. It's a part of that chapter because it's in a chapter on money and possessions and we use our resources. And so there's that dimension of the parable, which is often missed when it's solved.
1: And I love your observation. I love it, love it, love it. But is that the point of the parable? The point of the parable? It's one of them. It's one of them because it's
2: the ethical dimension that I'm supposed to sense about my responsibility. Another ethical parable is, of course, the parable of the good
1: Samaritan. Wait, wait, wait. Before you go there, I want to talk more about Lazarus. We can go to Samaritan. We got to. We got to go there. Okay, But but talk about this great chasm fix, because we have this whole trend of annihilationism that's pervasive now, probably for at least— We
2: ought to annihilate annihilationism. Okay, but Uh, let's talk about it, because for at
1: least two decades, (laughs) you and I have seen some of our evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing scholars change views on this, and they would attack this— so-called parable in their view, they would attack this parable and say that's not really what he was talking about.
2: Well, he is talking about, I mean, all the punishment scenes that you get from Jesus talk about eternal torment and the awareness of eternal torment. So annihilationism, I don't think, is something you can defend uh, from the Scripture. I do think it's important to understand where the torment comes from. And the torment comes from the idea that there is a God to whom I am designed to be related, to whom I am now separated forever, okay? My other way to say it is, in the afterlife, there will be no atheists, okay? I mean, you can take that category and just dump it because it doesn't exist. Everyone will know that a God exists. Everyone will know their relationship to that God. And for the people who didn't take advantage of the opportunity to be connected to God, that will be a very painful reality to have to face. And that's, you know, I talk about it when I illustrate this, You know, we all have moments in our life where we could wish we could rewind our lives and handle a particular situation differently, because when we think about how we handled it poorly, we go, that Mm -hmm, was painful, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, The eternal torment is a permanent moment, you know, in our lives, and you don't want to go
1: there. I love the way he writes this, though, because he wants to warn his brothers and, That's right. and they go, no, they've got more than enough information. But then he oh, says, Oh, there's
2: a huge irony in that. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, and, and that is what the parable denies it actually delivers. Exactly. Do <laughs> you understand what I mean? Yes. In totally. other words, okay. I mean, he says, send someone from the dead to tell them, what do you think the parable is doing? Okay. Here's a voice from beyond telling you. <laughs> Pay attention to this, all right? So the parable denies it in the story, but it's actually doing it in its execution. I think that's a great touch.
1: Um, Yeah, exactly. And then he says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, which they've already got then they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You talk about a tell. Whoa! And the
2: gospel of John does that in spades Mm -hmm. because the gospel of John comes around and says, if you really read and understood Moses, you would be embracing me.
1: But I just find it striking. So we've got—and then we tend to—and you can help us out here, too. We tend to think of the scribes and Pharisees maybe in caricature or maybe we have our own, you know, sort of uh, inflated or incorrect view of who they were. These were religious political leaders who had clout, who had power, and they were esteemed by the culture at large. Uh, And They were the
2: good guys. They were the ones. Right. Yeah.
1: And they're being dismantled.
2: Yeah. In fact, I tell people, you know, when we get into discussions about engagement, et cetera, and we say, you know, and sometimes I, you know, I have a stress on tone that talks about the compassion of the Christian, and how understanding which be. And I get the response. Well, Jesus was pretty harsh. I said, yeah, he can be. You know, who he's harshest with the people who thought they knew better. Yeah. And so that's what you see in the Gospels. People who say they represent God, but do not represent God well, they catch it from Jesus. And that's okay? what
1: makes me terrified forgive me for being a little uh indelicate about television evangelists and preachers. Uh well, it makes
2: me uncomfortable period. S- some of the these, measure that I'm measuring yep,
1: by yep, is the measure
2: I'm going to be measured yep. by.
1: Some of these people with, you know, metaphorically very loud pulpits and bullhorns scare me to death because I go Man, you're setting yourself up for something. You don't understand what you're doing. But and even back to the parable, when he talks about, you know, you had your good things in life. That's it. <laughs> That's all you're going to get. When you
2: undercut outreach by the way you say God is portrayed, God is not happy in heaven.
1: Pretty chilling. Pretty chilly. Yep. Very chilling. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the second coming being expressed in Luke 17, and then we'll go to the Samaritan, because this is a passage i always love to hear smarter people talk about. This is 1722. He said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So give us some insight on some of these shards that Jesus talks about for his return.
2: Okay, and let me go back a couple of verses because he's already told them that people will say, look here and look there, but you don't need to because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in your grasp. It's in your face. Actually, what he's saying is, you don't need to hunt for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is right here with me. That's how he starts that discourse. And then he reinforces it by saying, and people say, look here, look there, okay, but the days of the Son of Man, which are the days of judgment, in other words, when Jesus came the first time, he suffered to provide the forgiveness But the one thing that they expected of the Messiah, he didn't deliver with his first coming. That's the judgment. That's yet to come. And so that's going to come, but that's going to come like lightning, okay? Now, lightning does two things, okay? One, it's obvious and it comes quickly. You know, we normally when we think of lightning, we also think of thunder. And I think all of us have the experience of being in bed, dead asleep, and this huge clap of thunder comes and we get woken by the thunder. Or if we're sitting in a room, While a huge storm is happening, of course, this happens in Tennessee and in Texas all the time. The northerners will struggle with this a little bit. (laughs) But, you know, the lightning comes and the bolt of thunder and you jump in your chair because the bolt of the thunder is so loud because the lightning came so suddenly and unexpectedly. That's the picture. It'll be obvious when it comes, like the light flashes in the midst of a dark storm, and it will be sudden when it happens. And it'll happen like that. So the idea here is if it's going to happen like that, you better be ready before it comes because there's not going to be time to respond when it comes like that.
1: So uh, not to get too off in the weeds, but I have a very bad theological joke that I never get a laugh from, is that I believe in the imminent return of Jesus, just not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. So, you know, there was a time when, uh, as these trends come and go, when, you know, we were really intrigued by eschatology and end times and you know yeah, tribulation. In the
2: sixties like I did. Yeah, Go ahead.
1: yeah, yeah. and <laughs> in the seventies and all the books yeah, and, right, and films right. and whatnot. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, but all that to say, so just give us, you know, Doc Box, how does a believer in our current space and time think about end times theology?
2: Be prepared as if it could come in the next minute. Live as if it won't come until three
1: thousand. And what does it mean, real shoe leather? You know, earlier I was talking uh, on an interview, and I said, you know, the challenge for me is to live today for Christ. And I doubt any of us goes to bed at night thinking, boy, I really lived well for Jesus today. Um,
2: Well, I think the call is, and this is what I say about core discipleship anyway, we are not responsible for the results of what it is that we do unless we've done something poorly. Okay. The only thing we are responsible to is to be faithful to God. If we are faithful to God, the more faithful we are to God, okay, the less we have to be concerned about uh, because other stuff is his business. The response of people when we share the gospel is his business, etc. cetera. Uh, the circumstances around us and when he's going to come and fix it, that's his business. And that doesn't mean that we're unengaged. I mean, my life is given to talking about a theology of engagement. But it does mean you keep in your pay grade. And the core thing about your pay grade as a disciple is you are called to be faithful to the calling that God has given you. And that's what you seek to do and be. And that's how you assess yourself. You assess yourself on whether I've been faithful or not and trying to be faithful, trying to live out the great commandment, trying to be responsive, trying to be good, trying to serve the city, trying to be a good citizen of the church that you're a part of and a contributor You know, uh, the ways in which I can serve. We were designed originally in Genesis 1, when we were made in the image of God, to tend the garden well in cooperation with one another. What am I contributing to that? That's one of the most basic core questions someone can ask in terms of their original design about why God made us in His image. And the best way I honor God is by being a good steward of what it is that God has given me to steward.
1: I often tell people, you know, God's called us to be faithful, not successful. And yeah. I think we all have these, uh, you talked about the, oh, moment with regret. I think we all have these um, sort of self-defined what success looks like for me, uh, whether it's, you know, as a physician, as a businessman or woman, as a pastor, as a writer, as you winner, know, or whatever, we have an idea, a musician of what success looks like. And rather focusing on faithfulness is a whole lot. Number one, it's in line with what he wants. And number two, it's a lot more liberating.
2: Yep, it is. It's absolutely more liberating. Uh, All right, let's go to
1: this. You wanted to talk about the Good Samaritan.
2: Oh, I love this parable. Okay, this is a parable. I say there's the question, and then there's what the question's really asking. First of all, yes, what I have to do to inherit eternal life, which is an ancient way of asking what I have to do to be saved. And this is where the ethical emphasis of Luke comes out in terms of what he highlights. Jesus' answer is an affirmation of the great commandment. He doesn't share the four spiritual laws. He doesn't? He's interested.
1: Wait, no. wait, Did Bill Bright know yeah. this? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Okay,
2: because the whole point of why God made us and restoring us to that is the point why Jesus came, which means he wants us at the core to love God and love our neighbors. And so he answers in that, and then, of course, the questioner wants to justify himself. So he asks, who is my neighbor? Which he's really asking is, who doesn't count as a neighbor? How wide does this go? And Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan to basically say, that's the wrong question. question is not, who do I need to be concerned about to serve, and who can I ignore? The answer to the call that God gives you is, be a good neighbor, okay, like the Samaritan, okay? So not only—, Look, not only Let, me, let to... me
1: interrupt uh, for, uh-huh. for the audience. For the Jew to hear, be a good Samaritan, hoy.
2: Oh, like not only that, it's like when he tells the story and he's done, the guy listening to the parable, you know, who proved to be the neighbor among the man who fell among the thieves? He can't even say it's the <laughs> so, 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 exactly so, so, Samaritan. Okay? Exactly. He can't even go there. He says the one who showed mercy. He can't even say <laughs> so, the name Samaritan. <laughs> Give me a break. Okay. So you're sitting here going, the call is to be a neighbor. And then the second thing that's teaching, of course, is that sometimes neighbors come in surprising packages. And so our call is not to ask who the guy is out there, but who I'm supposed to be in the midst of it. It reinforces something that's in Paul's letters that I think we miss. In Galatians 6.10, it says, do good, especially to those of the faith. And you know how many passages there are, Mike, where we go, well, that passage about believers, it's not how I'm supposed to treat people outside the church. Okay, Galatians 6.10 doesn't let you go there. You're supposed to treat everybody the same. You certainly should do it for those who are in the house of God, but you're supposed to do that for everybody. That text in Galatians 6.10 comes at the end of the exposition of the great commandment in Galatians 5 and 6, in which the fruit of the Spirit's in the middle of it. And so what I'm suggesting to you is, is there are things the gospel teaches that the epistles affirm, okay, And this ethical core is one of those strands that runs through the whole New Testament that you cannot ignore as you're talking about, what is it that God asks of those who claim his name and are part of his people?
1: When you read the hinge of this, so we've got the, you know, what do I do to be saved, you know, pragmatically. And basically what you're injecting is that you show mercy to anyone and everyone. You treat them the way God treats you. And then we go to the Martha and Mary interaction, which is just striking, Because, you know, and of course, I'm a geography guy. When I read these, I'm seeing what he's doing physically. He goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a whole theological import there. And now Mm -hmm. in verse 38, he's traveling along and enters a village, which we know is Bethany. Mm -hmm. And he's welcomed by Martha and Mary. Across the
2: street from Jerusalem. Exactly right. And she's sitting at his feet. So the sequence in that section of Luke is there's um, how I treat my neighbor. And then there's how I relate to Jesus. I should sit at his feet. And then there's how I relate to God. I should pray Pray. and pray the prayer of the dependent disciple as I relate to God. And so you get the great commandment, only you get it in reverse.
1: Hmm. Interesting. All right. So, Doc, let's land the plane here. Give me high level. What's Luke talking about? And how do we land the gospel?
2: Luke is very concerned who the believer is in the midst of the world, which means he's committed to love, loving God with all his heart, mind, and soul, loving his neighbors himself, taking the gospel out into the world, being the person of God and a reflection of the character of God. We didn't even talk about the Sermon on the Plain, which also says love your enemy, which is what makes Christianity distinctive from everything else. We're not another special interest group. We are the people of God who have the spirit of God within us that enables us to live in counter-cultural ways that show the character of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, and are the basis for being able to offer the gospel to people so that they understand when we stretch out a hand and even challenge them with the way that we live, we're doing it because we care about them. They will not care about your critique unless you care. Luke is showing all of that, and so his key idea is the way in which God's salvation reconciles peoples to one another because of what he does to people's hearts.
1: Dr. Daryl Bach, the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, longtime friend and sparring partner. Thanks for your help on the gospel. No bruises today. <laughs> no, bruises no bruises, today. bruises Well, we're, we're separated by COVID in time, uh, in space. and times and space. And we'll have to have you back here in a short order and help us with Luke's second book, the Book of Acts.
2: Okay. Look forward to it. All the best to you.
1: And uh, as I always say, keep smiling. I will if you will. Deal? Okay, deal. (laughs) Blessings, Doc.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.